This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, bringing you the Socialism Conference. No one is coming to save us but us. Grassroots movements for social change confront a critical juncture today. We need visionary politics, collective strategy, and compassionate communities now more than ever. In a moment of political uncertainty, the Socialism Conference, this September 1st through 4th in Chicago, will once again be a vital gathering space for today's left. At Socialism 2023, join thousands of activists, organizers, abolitionists, and socialists to learn from each other and from history, assess ongoing struggles, build community, and experience the energy of in-person gatherings. Featured speakers at Socialism 2023 will include Naomi Klein, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, Harsha Walia, Kelly Hayes, Dina Gilio Whitaker, Bettina Love, Sophie Lewis, Malcolm Harris, Ilya Budreitskis, and many, many more. I will also, once again, be speaking at the Socialism Conference doing a live dig. The Socialism Conference is brought to you by Haymarket Books. Visit socialismconference.org to learn more and register now. Register before July 7th for the early bird discounted rate. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I've been wanting to do this interview with Brenna Bandar for a long time. An interview on her remarkable book, Colonial Lives of Property, Law, Land, and Racial Regimes of Ownership. Bandar is no stranger to the podcast. She co-edited Ruth Wilson Gilmore's book, Abolition Geography, and joined Gilmore and Alberto Toscano to discuss and dissect the collection. Bandar's own book analyzes the history of how dominant conceptions of private property were and are made alongside race and racial hierarchies in colonial encounters stretching from Ireland and British Columbia to Australia and Palestine. Her book tells a story about how racial difference emerges from and continues to be reproduced in the frontiers of settler colonies the world over. Here, race is made by and helps make sense of particular forms of labor and property relations, like who can claim ownership of territory, who is fit to steward land, who is and isn't a rational subject capable of entering modern market society. And although the book and this interview do go all the way back to the 17th century colonization of Ireland, Bandar doesn't locate this history solely in the now-distant past. Rather, she stresses that what she calls racial regimes of ownership are in the DNA of the property law that governs much of our lives in Anglo-American capitalism today. It is a conversation with implications for how we think about the history of race and empire, liberal political theory, and common law jurisprudence but also for how we will conceive of the shape of struggles against private property to come. Before we get things started, I do want to ask you to support this podcast. These episodes do appear to you in the realm of discourse and ideology, but they do, just like everything else, have a very real material basis. Listener contributions at patreon.com slash the dig make it possible for me to do this show for a living and to pay everyone else who helps make it happen. We also have books, tote bags, and mugs to send U.S.-based listeners who contribute at least $10 a month. Contributors everywhere who contribute anything at all 
get our excellent newsletter email right to you. Please take a moment to contribute what you can, if you can. We don't paywall anything so that everyone can listen. But we can only do that because those of you who can afford to contribute, do so. If that's you, contribute now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. There's a link in the show notes. Hit pause, click it, contribute. Okay, here's Brenna Bandar, who works and live on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations. She is the co-editor of Revolutionary Feminisms, Conversations on Collective Action and Radical Thought, and the author of the book we're discussing today, Colonial Lives of Property, Law, Land, and Racial Regimes of Ownership. Brenna Bandar, welcome back to The Dig. Thanks, Daniel. You write, quote, Property law was a crucial mechanism for the colonial accumulation of capital, and by the late 19th century had unfolded in conjunction with racial schemas that steadfastly held colonized subjects within their grip. Property laws and racial subjectivity developed in relation to one another, an articulation I capture with the concept of racial regimes of ownership. To start off, what are racial regimes of ownership and how how does that concept capture this this interplay between property law and racial orders all fundamentally tied together in the colonial context? So I use the term racial regimes of ownership to capture the complex way in which legal subjectivity And we could go even beyond that, really, and to say that modern concepts of the human are fundamentally tied to uh, many of the animating logics of the way that private property ownership comes to be conceived in in the modern era. So... Racial regimes of ownership is a term or a, or a concept, actually, that I develop in the book to explore how it is that rationales for private property ownership emerge in conjunction with a racial concept of the human. And I develop in the book the idea that we can't really understand modern conceptualizations of race and racial difference without thinking about the legal form of property and vice versa. To continue with a a, a basic but important point, or maybe basic and so important point that you underline very early in your book, you write, quote, if the possession of land was and remains the ultimate objective of colonial power, then property law is the primary means of realizing this desire. Let's stay with the first half of that question. Why? Why is it that possession of land was and is so central to colonial power? And what does that then reveal about how we should think about land in terms of our broader analysis of, of the capitalist world system? The control and possession of land is central to colonial endeavors, uh, primarily because of the main objective of colonial rule, which is resource extraction. And so in order to extract resources as much and as efficiently as colonial authorities deign to do, control over land is, the, is, is in a way 
the most basic and fundamental beginning of colonial rule. That then entails uh, the domination of native populations. And so we, we see actually right in the genesis of different kinds of colonial enterprises. And we can think about this right from the you know, late 15th century with Spanish and Portuguese colonialism, and then through all of the different instantiations of European colonial rule, that asserting sovereign jurisdiction over foreign territories is really the the beginning point of colonialism. Now, that right from the start is actually not necessarily a state function, because we know that Many colonial endeavors begin with chartered companies, right, being given uh, monopolies over particular forms of trade. If we look at British Columbia as an example, the the Hudson's Bay Company is given a uh, monopoly charter for a very long time indeed before colonization becomes a formal state project uh, by the British government. So, you know, if we look at the charter that the Hudson's Bay Company is given, it's not just a monopoly charter over trade, but they are given rights by the colonial state to control a vast territory. And I think that was that was probably all rather obvious at the time. But these days we think to think of everything as so ephemeral or digital that the raw territoriality of of capitalist power can sometimes not be as, as as visible. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends where you're located. But if we think about a country like Canada, but much of the world, really, you know, when we think about the way that resource extraction is still happening, I mean, we, we only need to really think about the the climate crisis and um, the and fossil fuel extraction, right? So if we think about those contemporary forms of resource extraction, maintaining control over Indigenous territory is remains a, a key objective of the state capital nexus. So this is, is, is both an old story and it's both still are present. You argue that that property law is a primary means of realizing the colonial desire for the possession of land. How how does that relate to or or depart from other prevailing accounts of settler colonialism? I think I think most listeners might imagine settler colonialism as a as a less mediated, a less legally mediated process that laws might make claims on land, but that it's more about the active force of settler violence that makes it a reality. What what are the stakes of thinking about colonialism as a project advanced both through high politics and the law and also the raw violence of, of gun gun power and, and conquest? That's a really great question. And I think that I think one of the most useful ways of thinking about that relationship is to consider how the imposition of a colonial legal system required a great deal of violence, both at the hands of individual settlers, as well as, you know, you mentioned gunboat diplomacy or um, um, that kind of state-driven 
war, warfare. Um, but, but in fact, when we look at um, property law, contract law, and these legal forms that were absolutely central to imposing a system of private property ownership within colonies, within settler colonies in particular, they also required forms of violence that were on the face of it in violation of even settler law. So that relationship between legality and illegality, or, or what is on the face of it illegal, actually they're, they're constitutively bind, bound to, pardon me, bound to one another. I've been looking at this more recently with, a, with an interdisciplinary group of scholars around the, the doctrine of preemption, for example. So preemption is something that I do discuss in one of the chapters uh, where I'm looking at ideologies of improvement, which I'm sure we'll get on to talking about in more detail. But the doctrine of preemption, this is a very good example of this dynamic between property law and then individual settler violence. So preemption is a doctrine that essentially allows settlers to stake out unsurveyed land that has not been parceled up and bought, bought or sold by other settlers. And upon registering a preemption, settlers would have to um, fulfill certain requirements, such as cultivating that land, um, maybe building a house or some kind of structure on that land. Their focus was really on cultivation. And settlers, you know, in, in from 18... 1860 onwards, and, and I'm just speaking about uh, the province of British Columbia, just to use that example right now, um, could preempt up to 160 acres individually, and then that eventually increased to 320 acres per individual. And so we have a situation where settlers are literally just driving stakes in the ground of unsurveyed land, um, doing a kind of sketch to the best of their ability of this unsurveyed land and registering preemptions. And if they could show after two years that they had cultivated the land, they would then get a certificate of improvement. And then that would be the basis for uh, obtaining fee simple ownership. So obtaining, you know, private property rights over that land. And what we see in the historical record is that settlers would often preempt land that was clearly a part of, you know, an indigenous settlement. So lands that had been cultivated by uh, First Nations, uh, village sites, etc. And even though the, the preemption legislation stated explicitly that settlers were not supposed to preempt, you know, quote unquote, Indian settlements or lands that had been, uh, were clearly in use by indigenous communities, um, what we see in the historical record is, in fact, a lot of settler violence in order to preempt land. And that violence is then treated with impunity by the state. So it's an example, uh, quite a, um, a good example of how this burgeoning colonial state requires individual settlers to preempt land so that the state can solidify its jurisdictional control over this vast area where they don't actually have the quote-unquote manpower or the personnel to maintain control uh, over this vast territory. So they need individual settlers to do that. 
and individual settlers then violate the terms of settler law, uh, use a great deal of violence against Indigenous peoples, and are treated with impunity by the state. So, you know, I think the story about law and colonial settlement is actually one of a very intimate relationship between individual settler violence and a colonial state that actually needs settlers to be rapaciously taking over land in order to shore up its own control over its colonial territory. Let's turn to the beginning of your history, beginning with your refutation of how that story is conventionally told. How is the history of private property law typically conveyed as as something more narrowly about England proper? And what does that conventional narrative obscure? Well, I think looking at it from a legal perspective, so sticking with that question of what difference does it make to understand settler colonialism through a a legal lens, you know, I think I'm not sure if there's a single narrative or origin story of the development of private property. I mean, I, I suppose within certain more orthodox Marxist traditions, you, you look at the enclosure movement in England and and also colonial Ireland, actually, in, in order to understand the emergence of modern forms of private property. The point that I try and develop in the book is that when it comes to modern property law, we can't really understand the development of modern property law without looking to the colonies, without looking to the settler colony, for instance, as a kind of legal laboratory. And so if we look at land reform movements in England, so uh, one thing that I, I look at in the book is is the idea of title by registration. So that's another good example of how land law reformers in England who over a long period of time were trying to change property law to reflect a more commoditized, you know, vision of land. And uh, we're trying to reform law so that land could be treated more as a commodity. It could be exchanged more easily. It could be alienated more easily. You know, they, they attempted to impose a system of title by registration through, um, th- throughout England. And that really failed because, of course, they were dealing with a feudal aristocracy who in some ways did not want to make their lands more easily alienable, um, uh, you know, because of the the fear of losing um, those lands. And so where are these doctrines, these legal doctrines developed? Well, in, in many ways, they are developed in the colonies where a colonial state who treats Indigenous populations as either less than human or as incapable of owning property privately, or uh, as in some instances in Canada, made owning uh, property privately contingent on giving up one's status as an Indigenous person, legally speaking. So in those contexts, it became much easier for a colonial government to impose different and more novel forms of land holding. So even the doctrine of preemption that I just spoke about a few moments ago, um, that doctrine of preemption is actually 
not something that's inherited from England. It's something that's developed in the United States. And Robert Nichols, in his marvelous book, uh, Theft is Property, maps some of that history of how preemption comes to be developed in the U.S. in order to deal with the problem of squatting. So in the U.S., preemption enables squatters to retroactively make their illegal occupation of land legal. Uh, you know, and the way I described it in the Canadian context is somewhat different, uh, where you don't have an excess of squatters squatting land, but you you have a need to, you know, attract settlers to, well, to settle a vast territory, which the burgeoning colonial state doesn't really have the power to do on their own. Last year, I, I talked to Kojo Karam about the the colony as a laboratory for policies that have and politics that have ricocheted back into the metropole in the years after decolonization and, and amid neoliberalism. But colony as a laboratory for political economy that ricochets back into the metropole has been the case from the very beginning. Well, I think so. I, I mean, I think that that is a you know, persuasive argument, <laughs> because colonial authorities were, I mean, there's a few different elements of that. One is that they were dealing with a, a different, different demographics, different political challenges than legislators were dealing with in, in, you know, back in the UK. They were needing to develop and innovate laws and policies at speed, right? I mean, they're, you know, J- Governor James Douglas in British Columbia is is has a very real present problem when it comes to trying to figure out how to sustain financially this burgeoning colony. And so the land policies that he adopts are really in response to uh, problems that have quite a lot of urgency, I think. Um, so a lot of the innovation, we could call it, or creation of novel legal doctrines, or maybe not entirely novel, because they're circulating through different colonial sites. So with the doctrine of preemption, for instance, James Douglas borrows that from Oregon, you know, where where it had been used um, quite pervasively. So uh, I, I I think that that that's what's that that is what's happening, and the personnel are also circulating through these colonial networks. You know, different colonial administrators, different colonial surveyors may have had experience in the Caribbean, in South Asia, in Africa, and then they land up in another part of the British Empire and bring with them um, this knowledge and these practices. So. Um, I think that there is a lot more fluidity and, yeah, experimentation that's happening in the colonial world. And I think that really it goes against the idea that colonialism involved a sort of one-way export of laws and policies from, uh, you know, from the UK out to the colonies, which I think is is the way that colonialism has been understood, I think, for quite a long time. Yeah, because like you're saying, in the colony, from the perspective of the colonial administrator, there's both an urgent need and the political space to innovate, as twisted as it is in this context, with something like title by registration, which the aristocracy back home are 
resisting because it's one of their points of conflict with the rising bourgeoisie. But then ultimately, the those ascendant economic forces allow or propel these methods developed in the colonies to be applied in the metropole, regardless of what yeah. the aristocracy I mean, might have to say about it. <laughs> That's right. And, and you know, it takes a lot longer with the title by registration example, it takes a lot longer for that to be implemented widely in, in England, for instance, in England and Wales. It takes until I think the 1925 or it might be just before that land legislation reform, wow. whereas it's introduced in the colonies in the 1860s. So, you know, I think that, that that's another example. And I think we could look across different legal domains. So I'm just focused on property law. But if we look at Nasser Hussein's work, for instance, um, the wonderful book he wrote on the jurisprudence of emergency, you know, that's an examination how of how the law of emergency takes on certain valences in the colonial setting. And it, it, you know, has a lot of explanatory value for understanding how emergency laws are put into effect in our contemporary moment to control often to control racialized populations in, you know, in different European states, we could say. So we, you know, we could definitely, one could look at contract law, criminal law. I, I mean, I think that the scope for this kind of analysis is, is uh, fairly unlimited. You write that it is, quote, clear that historically speaking, in common law jurisdictions, use that would justify an ownership right was defined by cultivation, and cultivation was understood within the relatively narrow parameters of English agrarian capitalism. How did this ideology of improvement take root in English political economy beginning in the 17th century as part of this project of conquering and colonizing Ireland? What what about that early settler colonial project alongside the rise of capitalism propelled forth this new and abstracted way of measuring, of valuing people and land and and the relationship between people and land? Well, that's a massive question, Daniel, <laughs> because it, it, it um, brings up the huge theme of agrarian capitalism and the development of agrarian capitalism over centuries, I think we want, it's fair to say, and also the differential development of agrarian capitalism in different European states. And so, you know, we see uh, agrarian capitalism and the rationales underlying different forms of landholding developing quite differently, in, you know, in England versus France versus Germany, etc. right, that, that are specific to the, to the pre-existing histories of feudal land holding in those places. But going to the specific issue of use and improvement, we can see, you know, if we think about colonial Ireland, and I, I do look at the work of William Petty as a, you know, one of the early uh, thinkers of value that ties together a concept of value that embodies both, or encapsulates rather, the value of human individuals that is um, defined pretty much solely in terms of their labor power in conjunction with a, a, a certain kind of use of land, a certain kind of cultivation, and that's cultivation that is going to produce yields that will support a uh, growing 
you know, capitalist market economy in food production and agriculture. And so in Petty's work, and uh, I think Paul Gilroy has also um, in his Tanner lectures, which I only discovered after (laughs) writing the book, but he also dives into some of the racial thinking of Petty. So Petty's an interesting figure because, you know, we see there in, in, the 17th century, the emergence of a kind of racial thinking in the Irish context that ties together uh, or or that, you know, where we see the emergence of a kind of of a concept of racial value in relationship to the Irish, which is defined through their capacities for certain kinds of labor uh, in relationship to agricultural production. And, and again, resonating with the point you made earlier, Petty was not just an economist. He was also a colonial administrator in Ireland. And he, so he developed these ideas to solve practical problems of settler colonial domination and governance. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's I mean, I think that, you know, with William Petty, as opposed to a Joseph Trutch who comes later, <laughs> I think with William Petty, he he's, you know, recognized by people who have who are writing about William Petty, whether they're historians or political economists, you know, recognizing him as a polymath. You know, here's a surgeon who is sent to Ireland in order to, you know, do do the down survey, to to survey the land in order to pay off debts to the privateers, the adventurers, the the um, military personnel who had at that point, subdued subdued Ireland um, through colonial conquest. And so even the titles of his works, you know, the political anatomy of Ireland and uh, the political arithmetic. I mean, we see here, his work is fascinating because you see a scientific approach to measuring human value, that kind of political economy that fuses together a racial concept of value with political economy, you know, is is quite important then in thinking about how colonial, you know, the treatment of indigenous labor, indigenous lives, um, indigenous land uh, um, emerges in other places after that. People, I think, tend to attribute to Locke the this idea that improvement establishes a legitimate right to property. What what do we miss when we look only at Locke and not Petty to explain this idea? What's the interplay between the two? I think on that question of racial value, it's rendered more barren Petty's work somehow. And I think that Locke's work is very different because when he is, you know, in the two treatises and, and other texts where he's essentially trying to secularize what is until that time a divine or theological justification for ownership. I think of Locke's work as much more within a political philosophy, jurisprudential vein, whereas William Petty's, you know, thinking on this, I, I think I mentioned a minute ago that he's this polymath who's a surgeon <laughs> who's, who's, you know, thinking about, polit- you know, the political anatomy in 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 all of these different ways. So, that work, you know, his work in thinking about uh, the value of human life 
I think is quite distinct from, from Locke's more political philosophical justifications for private ownership, um, which are, yeah, sort of more firmly ensconced within political philosophy and jurisprudence, I think. You cite Baconian empiricism as a point of departure. Yeah, I think that in Petty's work, we see more of a, a turn towards taxonomy and classification and that sort of uh, natural science that was emerging mm-hmm. at that time, which is also, of course, a, a very uh, becomes foundational to racial thinking, that kind of uh, scientific taxonomization and categorization is also part of a shift from a more theological understanding of civilizational or racial difference that's rooted in religious difference. So I think Petty's work is also really located in that crucible of shit, of, the, of changing from theological religious justifications for colonization to more scientific or empirically based ideas of, di- of racial difference. You write, quote, the brutal displacement and dispossession of thousands of Irish that preceded the displacement of First Nations from their lands, based on the political arithmetic of Petty and those influenced by his work, such as John Locke and Adam Smith, is testament to the violence engendered by methods of measurement and quantification and conceptualizations of value defined primarily by economic productivity. What did the British deem unfinished about their settler colonial project in Ireland once military rule had been accomplished. What what did they determine was still left undone in terms of, as you write, quote, how to render the Irish into a complete state of submission? How did Petty's methods of valuing land and people help them accomplish it? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not qualified to answer that because I think I would <laughs> I would need to know a lot more about Irish history than I do. But I think what we see in the work of Petty is that there's a civilizational project at play, you know, and a lot of his writing is, uh, a lot of his writing on the Irish, it reflects a concern with how to make the Irish as civilized and as valuable as the English, you know, and he even, I think I, I think in the book, I talk about these passages where he contemplates the interbreeding of Irish and English uh, men and women uh, in the same way that you would breed different plant varieties to strengthen the, the result. I mean, it, it's, it's that kind of conception of, uh, of civilizational uplift or improvement that is at stake in the Irish, uh, in, in the situation of the British colonization of Ireland. So, uh, and that's obviously a, a way of thinking um, about difference that we see then, ha- you know, take place all all throughout the colonial world. So, yeah, I mean, along those lines, you write, quote, while modern biological racism had yet to emerge, conceptions of racial difference and crucially European superiority were conditioned at this time by the concept of land use. While Petty saw the Irish as capable improvement, as you just mentioned in all of those uh, unsettling ways, Jews were cast outside this paradigm altogether on account, at least in part, of their tenuous relationship to the land. 
The anti-Semitic trope of the wandering Jew that was all too familiar by the 17th and 18th centuries colors Petty's assessment of Jews in Europe, avoiding tax by not participating in the general economy, with no attachment to the land. Jews were cast outside the bounds of legibility within the primary economy of landowners and laborers. What does this early distinction between the Irish and the Jews reveal about some of the basic contours of this emerging racial regime of ownership and about and about how it would be applied in, in changing ways in the era that would follow, defined by overseas colonialism and slavery? Petty's comments about Jews, I think, his writings about Jews both simply mimic and echo very, you know, long-standing forms of anti-Semitism. So that idea of the, the Jew as the wandering, you know, nomadic figure who has no attachment to land, which is obviously an anti-Semitic trope, fits into Petty's emphasis on human value and productivity being linked to one's capacity to engage in a, a certain kind of agricultural labor. And he's comparing the, the, the Jew to Irish peasants who he, he sees as capable of being reformed. But what he finds perplexing about the Irish is that, you know, some of the, the Irish peasants who, who he's um, writing about, you know, in his view, it's quite confusing because they don't seem to exhibit the desire for uplift and improvement. <laughs> you know, they, um, you know, he he writes in very racist terms about uh, their mode of living, their mode of subsistence agriculture, their cultural practices and, uh, you know, linguistic practices, etc. So, so I think we see the figure of the maybe the redeemable native versus the nomadic figure. Uh, you know, and we also see during this period, um, as Foucault and others have written about uh, the criminalization of the quote unquote vagabond or the nomad, the nomadic figure who's not tied to a or, or affixed to a um, governable, um, controllable kind of labor, you know, that's not a labor that's not attached to, let's say, a particular um, estate. So, yeah, I think that that maybe we see a kind of prefiguration of the way in which the figure of the nomad becomes cast in a an anthropological frame as a kind of pre-modern subject. On, on on the one hand, there's this idea that they can that the Irish can improve themselves into full whiteness, or maybe that wasn't the concept yet. Something as good as the English through land ownership. At the very same time, that this very same ideology is dispossessing Irish people of from their land of their land and criminalizing them for vagrancy. Yeah, I think that's 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 absolutely right. Let's turn to the Americas and, and specifically British Columbia, where. You write about a colonial surveyor and a colonial surveyor and first lieutenant governor who you mentioned just a few minutes ago, Joseph Trutch. In your account, Trutch's methods of land surveying laid the ground for unprecedented seizures of land by British imperial agents, breaking open this new new period of settler colonial strategy. Who was Trutch and and how did he apply these Lockean or Petty-inspired principles that we've been discussing? 
How did he apply them in, in assessing and appropriating indigenous land? And then how do you square what I read as a sort of tension with Tretch? Because on the one hand, he had this intense he had this intense commitment to the the ideological framework that you're describing, but also you discovered in his letters or whatever archives you were reading, he was just unapod- unapologetically scheming to to get rich. How did the ideology and that mere desire for to get rich? How do they work together? To what extent was was the ideology more of an alibi? I think let's start with the second part of the question because it's such an interesting one. I mean, I, I don't think that one can separate that desire to profit personally from the larger state project of colonization, from the racial ideologies that are informing that person's, you know, everyday practices on the ground. I think that the, the, the desire for personal profit is analogous to and bound up with the interests of the colonial settler state. And it relates a little bit to what I was, well, it relates more than a little bit. It really is part of the same scene of preemption I was speaking about earlier, where the state is relying on the fact that there are individual um, immigrant settlers who want to come and amass profit and, and accumulate capital. So they, they need people that those are the kinds of settlers they need, right? And those settlers, the individual settlers need a state who's going to put into effect the legal and political infrastructure and the material infrastructure that allows them to do that. So I think those two things are really, they really go hand in hand. Um, that that personal greed motive is is very important <laughs> to the state as well. Um, in terms of who Trutch was and what he did in terms of dramatically reducing the lands that had been set aside as reserves for First Nations, I think one thing that's important to mention is that in a lot of the history that's been done of colonial settlement in British Columbia, British Columbia is is set apart from the rest of the country because with uh, very few exceptions um, of treaties having been signed early on on Vancouver Island, the rest of the province, which is a vast territory for anyone who doesn't know or hasn't looked at a map, was taken uh, without any treaties being signed. So that's why British Columbia is often the point of origin for a lot of Aboriginal title claims, for instance. But getting back to Trutch, a lot of a lot of historians and others, geographers who write about colonial settlement often um, characterize Trutch as being, you know, worse than than other colonial administrators who seem to want to recognize what was then referred to as Indian title. So, you know, James Douglas is often the first governor of the amalgamated colony of Vancouver Island and, and you know, the mainland, which becomes the colony of British Columbia, you know, is often looked upon as someone who uh, recognized Indigenous ownership of, of their lands and is somehow a more benevolent figure than Trutch, who is explicitly 
racist, you know, in in very violent terms. But I think it's, you know, it's it's important to recognize that these positions are just on a on a spectrum, really, a spectrum of uh, colonization where uh, racial difference is at the core of it. And whether it took a softer form or this very harsh form under Trudge, that the 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 settler colonial project in British Columbia is one of land theft. I mean, that's that's at the the heart of it. Now, Trutch, you know, is also quite a despicable figure because he, you know, committed, I think, what one could say are sort of, you know, certain kinds of fraud when it came to the reduction of reserve land. He, in the sense that he blatantly had ignored the boundaries that had hitherto been drawn around reserve lands, etc. So he he is quite a, yeah, seen as a despicable figure, but he's he's part and parcel of the colonial project. The, the extent to which you describe him as often being portrayed as sort of an outlier compared to more contractually oriented, let's do it by the book, settler colonialists, reminds me of this general argument you make about how the history of property is often described. You write, quote, the contradictory and uneven imposition of a system of title by registration in different settler colonial contexts challenges a developmental narrative of property law in which possession as the basis of ownership has slowly been displaced by a system of title by registration. Rather, it seems evident that these two rationales for ownership coexist alongside one another. The fragmented and recombinant nature of property law in the settler colony reflects the reality of colonial modernity. The imperatives of settler colonialism, itself a capitalist formation, require the maintenance of non-capitalist rationales for the appropriation of indigenous lands. Dispossession achieved through ongoing forms of primitive accumulation requires a panoply of pre-modern and modern property logics that operate in conjunction with one another reflecting the fragmented and contradictory nature of colonial modernity. I think that's a really powerful paragraph and it reflects, or I think that's a really powerful passage and it reflects a theme that we often return to on the podcast, which is about the necessary simultaneity under the broader capitalist order always of capitalist and non-capitalist forms of domination. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is an insight I, for, from for me, anyways, that really emerges with uh, a lot of post-colonial theory. So, you know, I think about some of the work done by subaltern studies scholars. You know, I think about the work of uh, Dipesh Chakrabarty and Provincializing Europe and um, Ranajit Guha's work. I mean, many works that. Uh, one could name, those are just a couple that come to mind, Um, but that have shown us that within colonial spaces, uh, the idea that there is some kind of linear teleological development is is a myth. Um, And I think we see that very clearly in the realm of property law, where the you know, the different rationales that I look at, but we could also think of other rationales and we can get into a conversation about that as well, but occupation, possession, and then this more abstract form of ownership through title by registration do operate recombinantly 
in a lot of different contemporary contexts. And we see um, struggles over ownership being waged on all of those fronts at the same time. So if we think about the dispossession of Palestinians um, in uh, throughout historic Palestine, you know, and I know there are so many differences in, within that uh, um, broad framework, but if we think about that, we can see examples where occupation, possession, and then the title deeds, the title documents, are three fronts in the struggle over land dispossession. You know, we can think about the struggles of different First Nations in British Columbia who are trying to defend their lands from catastrophic forms of resource extraction. So we think think about the Wet'suwet'en First Nation um, in northern British Columbia, where um, taking um, possession of or occupying one's traditional lands is the primary means of, of defending that land from corporations who have leasehold interests um, over that land and, and land that is nominally within the hands of the crown, um, but in fact is has been recognized as being unceded land, uh, meaning it was actually never legally given up by the Wet'suwet'en. So, you know, I think this point about the recombinant nature of the way in which property law operates to dispossess is is, uh, is quite an important way of understanding how it how it functions. Yeah, and and while this might be in tension with with certain formulations of Marxism, I think it wasn't at all foreign to Marx himself. Just looking at his concept of say formal and real subsumption as one of many insights into primitive accumulation as permanently constitutive constitutive of capitalism. Yeah, I don't know where the idea of a kind of linear teleology from a Marxist or from a left point of view, it would be interesting to consider where and when that takes hold. (laughs) I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Let This Radicalize You, Organizing in the Revolution of Reciprocal Care by Miriam Kaba and Kelly Hayes. What fuels and sustains activism and organizing when it feels like our worlds are collapsing? Let This Radicalize You is a practical and imaginative resource for activists and organizers building power in an era of destabilization and catastrophe. As Naomi Klein says of the book, this is a prophetic work, one that will be pressed with great urgency into the palms of friends and comrades, kin and colleagues, and anyone else ready to rise up against machineries of mass death. With great clarity and generosity, Hayes and Kaba model how participants in movements can be tough on systems while being gentle with one another and themselves, nurturing a counterculture of care as an integral part of building the next world. 
Find Let This Radicalize You by Miriam Kaba and Kelly Hayes at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. As the Settler Project developed, British and Britain's successor North American states forcibly relocated indigenous people into discrete reserves and reservations. Why was the establishment of Indian reserves a necessary precondition of sorts for for the private market of individual ownership? Well, I think that, you know, the idea of the reserve doesn't originate here. I mean, I think there's some historical evidence to show that the idea of reserves as it develops in British Columbia is borrowed from South Africa. And the reserve, the, the idea of pushing First Nations onto reserves, which are tiny, the term postage stamp has often been used to describe what reserves are, a tiny postage stamp sort of in dimensions uh, relative to First Nations traditional territories um, space where First Nations were to reside. And that idea and, and also the practice of creating reserves is essential to the creation of a private market or a market in private property because Indigenous peoples in British Columbia, and, and there's a huge, it's it's really a kind of, I can feel that it's quite terrible to overgeneralize, but I'm, I'll do that for, for the sake of this discussion because there's a huge uh, uh, heterogeneity amongst uh, First Nations in British Columbia, of course. But generally speaking, you know, many First Nations didn't hold land in as private property, and many First Nations did not relate to land as private property and, and with everything that subtends that system of property ownership, so the possessive individual, etc. And so to create a market in uh, private property on Indigenous territories required the creation of two different, at least two different economies of land. One is a market in private property and the other is the reserve economy. And the space of the reserve, colonial authorities attempt through pieces of legislation like the Indian Act and and other pieces of legislation that precede that uh, to control all of the kinds of economic activity and cultural practices, et cetera, that are allowed to take place within the reserve, within the bounds of the reserve. Um, Infamously, the federal government controls the movement of Indigenous peoples on and off reserve um, during certain periods of time. And land on the reserve is not held as individual private property. Reserve land is held in trust for Uh, the First Nation. So these two economies of property are are very much bound together and related to one another, Um, but it becomes the way that the colonial state deals with indigenous displacement. As we were discussing earlier, the law of preemption, it put the theory of improvement into practice for settlers, allowing them to appropriate land by mixing their labor with it. But that law did not apply in the same way to indigenous people. What what does it reveal 
that it was the act of cultivation that secured white settlers' control of land and and thus also, in a sense, made them white, but that indigenous people could not likewise become white by doing the same. It seems it seems like this is a recurring dynamic across multiple settler colonial contexts, including both the Irish and Palestinian cases. It's quite clear that indigenous peoples in British Columbia and, and of course, in the rest of the country cultivated their land. <laughs> and so I think in, in after finishing the book and moving on to look at preemption in more detail uh, recently, there's a lot of evidence to show that settlers would either ignore or destroy crops that had been planted by uh, First Nations uh, peoples. And so I guess what I want to say is that that idea that Indigenous peoples do not cultivate their land, so really going back to that Lockean fantasy that, you know, the America exists as this uncultivated wild is a racial trope. And it's also a con because it's clear uh, when we look at the historical record that settlers would routinely destroy crops of First Nations people. So, you know, I think that it's uh, this ideology of improvement is cast in racial terms precisely to dispossess Indigenous peoples of their land and to justify it on, on the basis of this idea of cultivation. Now, I'm not saying that Indigenous communities here cultivated their lands in exactly the same way as settlers may have. And, you know, the way in which settlers may have emulated some idea of the homestead, for instance, uh, may have been different. That's something that I just really don't know enough about. However, what, what is clear from the historical record is that oftentimes what were recognized by by settlers as crop, you know, crops and cultivated land were, were simply destroyed. So what we see is, is a kind of creating of that Lockean fantasy of the wasteland through a great deal of violence. It's, it's a making of land into waste in order so it can therefore be appropriated. You write, quote, being an owner and having the capacity to appropriate have long been considered prerequisites for attaining the status of the proper subject of modern law, a fully individuated citizen subject. It turns out, in, in other words, that the political liberalism is deeply historically embedded in capitalist and colonial social relations. What is the relationship between wage labor, property, and this particular sort of subjectivity, a subjectivity premised on the notion that it's a subjectivity with an interiority and a rational interiority at that. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, I mean, two different ways of understanding that relationship. So between wage, labor, property ownership, and and this particular kind of subject who, the proper subject who desires both to own property and to you know, who has the capacity to alienate one's labor in the marketplace, let's say, is, you know, something that obviously is uh, the critique of that relationship is is a core part of, you know, Marx's critique of capitalism, right? So um, I think that we can understand that relationship as very much a kind of oppressive disciplining force 
that is is core to the constitution of the you know of the modern legal subject, the modern human subject. Even um, we can also see it as a as a racial construct, right? So the idea that the proper legal subject is one who uh, has the capacity to freely alienate his or her labor obviously means that vast swathes of humanity who were either enslaved or indentured or or simply did not have the capacity to freely alienate one's labor fall uh, outside of you know something that does become a kind of teleological understanding of development actually i think going back to what we discussed earlier and that when freedom comes um, that very notion of freedom, as Sadia Hartman and many others have explored, Denise Ferreira de Silva, Fred Moten and others, that concept of freedom is also bound to this racial history of enslavement. And we can think about the history, racial histories of indentureship as well. So, you know, I think that that uh, sorry, as in addition to the the idea of freedom that underlies the uh, the idea of one's um, capacity to freely alienate their labor, then there's also the figure of the of the proprietorial subject, and that is also clearly a racial construct. So I think we can we can understand the that relationship in in a multitude of ways, but at least along those two trajectories, at least I would say. And then, how do we understand it? A major tension there that that. On the one hand, self-possession is required in order to alienate one's labor by selling it in the marketplace. And against, on the other hand, this conception of fr- freedom and free labor ideals that holds ownership of land as the prerequisite for independent freedom and wage labor as a threat to that independence. That was obviously you know, something that was key in the 19th century, but the idea that the wage relationship is fundamentally unfree, it's not... Today, it's very pervasive and not just among Marxist or labor activists. It's this idea that's not so progressive, that true freedom can be secured only through some sort through property ownership or or self-employment. And so you have these pervasive fantasies of escape from the wage-labor relationship, of individual escape through the wage-labor relationship that do not propose overturning it entirely for everyone. I mean, I see it more as a contradiction. So if your escape from a racialized labor market is to become a self, um, an entrepreneur or a um, property owner, I mean, there there is some there's a logic to that. Or or a, or a Bitcoin or a Bitcoin owner or a Bitcoin <laughs> owner. Exactly. There's a logic to that. And we see many different racialized um peoples in, you know, settler colonial context, most certainly, but but I'm sure it has other configurations elsewhere, abiding by that logic. So the contradiction inheres in the fact that, of course, private property ownership is not a path to freedom for, for the owner or indeed for anybody else. Uh, but we can understand the the temptation and, and also the part of that that is is surely I don't want to use the word true for some people, but but becomes a a uh, lesser evil perhaps is the way is the best way to think about that. 
You address the scholarship on Aboriginal rights, and you argue that it sometimes takes for granted that colonial imported property laws are racist and in doing so treats racism as a sort of self-explanatory explanation as to, quote, how property law functions as a form of domination. What do certain readings that conjure up race and racism as, I guess, an almost transcendent force, what do, that, what do those sorts of explanations elide about how race is constructed in a way that's, again, fundamentally mutually constitutive of capitalism, colonialism, and property law? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a really important distinction in various fields of work, uh, various fields of critical work. So work that admits, of course, that race and racism are a part of colonial history, let's say, uh, or the dispossession of um, indigenous land, if we take that kind of um, example, that specific example, but does not really delve into how racial thinking and how concepts of racial difference are conceptually bound to doctrines, uh, legal doctrines, legal doctrines of property ownership, of of contract, etc. And the kind of work I'm interested in doing and, and others like K. Sue Park and Robert Nichols, you know, to mention uh, some other scholars who I think are working in the same vein as I am, is is where we're really trying to crack open the legal doctrines, but also more broadly, we could say the juridical, to understand how conceptions of racial difference are constitutively bound, I think I'm repeating myself, but constitutively bound to the the, the property law doctrines that emerge in the colonial setting. So it's a very different kind of conceptual work and one which I think is very important because in the former kind of work, you just really lose sight of the importance of race altogether. I mean, it doesn't really do much for our understanding of how racism operates and also crucially its contemporary manifestations to just sort of admit by the by that, yes, of course, this was, you know, racist in some way. So I think that, yeah, there, there, there's a distinction that I see in a lot of work between that first kind of work and then this other um, strand of work. And that it was, and that, yes, it was, uh, it was racist, but race, racism reduced to there were some bad, you know, archaic thoughts in people's Heads, And it's not just that this historical account is wrong or simplistic. It's that these sorts of explanations that that treat race and racism as automatically self-explanatory rather than deeply embedded in all these other things. They can they can treat today's promise of the multicultural but still thoroughly capitalist settler colony. They can treat it as 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 a potentially liberatory one. Absolutely. I think unless you understand how race, gender, sexuality are are really kind of baked into notions of property and propriety, et cetera, then it, see, it, it can look, without that kind of an analytical frame, it can then look as if, well, if we acknowledge the racism, we can then move past it, you know, still within the framework of an economy of private property relations. And that, of course, is key to 
contemporary movements for reconciliation, which do not necessarily upend or or impinge upon contemporary the contemporary kind of settlement when it comes to the political economy of places like British Columbia. So I think that this difference in analytical frame is really crucial. In Palestine, proof of cultivation has long been key to determining legal, legitimate ownership of land, at, at least for Jews, and at least on the discursive level. You write, quote, It was through the mixing of his sweat with the soil of Palestine that the exiled Jew would redeem himself, reforming his attachment to the land of Zion, while at the same time creating a viable and sustainable Jewish economy in Palestine. And revealingly, it was these much older forms of European anti-Semitism, the ones we were discussing earlier, the ones that held that Jews were, were radically different in part because of their lack of ties to the land. It was that European legacy of anti-Semitism, quote, that arguably informs the Zionist emph- emphasis on laboring on the land as key to the redemption of the Jewish people in Palestine. How did this ideology, a sort of funhouse mirror of the very sort of anti-Semitism that shaped these forms of property law from their earliest days, how did this ideology shape early Zionist settlement? And what sort of understanding of Palestinians' relationship to the land did that ideology require to justify the dispossession of Palestinians? Right. Well, I think that it's it's pretty explicit in the writings of some of the early Zionists. So in the Zionism of Theodore Herzl and Arthur Ruffin, in particular, who I look at, and Chaim uh, Arlosaroff and other sort of founding fathers of uh, Zionist settlement, they were, they were heavily influenced by models of European colonialism. So the uh, models of European colonialism that involved the dispossession of indigenous peoples and the imposition of a different forms of agrarian capitalism were were part of what uh, early Zionists foresaw as as you know being central to the 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 Israeli Zionist project. And I think that it's also very clear that the anti-Semitism that you just described, that I described in the book, was something that early Zionists were very much attempting to react against, obviously. And so in this quite perverse way, I think you have a very, you know, understandable reaction to that kind, that long history of anti-Semitism that focuses on the lack of attachment to land um, informing a project that is modeled on European colonialism, which then also conflates with certain ideas of of being of of the soil, you know, and a kind of I, I think in the, the chapter, one of the chapters where I'm discussing this, I refer to how that kind of a certain sort of German romanticism also informed some of these early ideas of of blood and soil as a basis for uh, membership in in what would become the Israeli state. All of these things inform the drive of the of the early Zionists in in Palestine. As we discussed earlier, quote, even where indigenous ownership conforms to European standards of proof. 
the imperative to legally possess and displace indigenous populations from their land overwhelms more contemporary rationales for ownership. This is certainly the case in Palestine. As you write, quote, It is difficult to square Israel's claims of being the only democracy in the Middle East when the basic tenets of a liberal democracy, the protection of private property rights, are denied to some of its own citizens on the basis of a racialized national identity. What sort of alibis or ideologies are are put forward to justify this entirely instrumental approach to property ownership? And, And what does that instrumentality then, what does it look like as law? when implemented to dispossess Palestinians and, in your analysis, Bedouin in particular? I mean, I think this is where we see the same rationale and the same nationalist drive take quite fragmented legal forms. So one of the rationales that is put forward by the Israeli state when it comes to the dispossession of Palestinian landholders is that of security. And security, of course, is used as an excuse um, within the bounds of, of Israel in the West Bank. In, um, and, and security, of course, as, as I may have alluded to before, I, uh, or maybe we haven't really spoken about security yet, but on a Benthamite rationale for private property ownership, of course, security is, is absolutely key. So the expectation that one will be secure in one's property right is really the key rationalization for private property ownership that that Jeremy Bentham gives us. And so, you know, the property logic is, is I think, quite present there. At the same time, I think there's, there's quite a fragmented legal regime where, at least from the perspective of lawyers, in, in the West Bank, there's often been a focus on international law and the law of occupation as a way of trying to uh, resist and argue against land dispossession and population transfer and displacement. Within the bounds of uh, Jerusalem, there's the use of land use planning laws and municipal bylaws and regulations to dispossess Palestinians. And then, of course, we have the uh, situation in Sheikh Jarrah, which goes back to um, the attempts by Israel to reduce what is a situation of um, dispossession of um, Palestinians into a real estate problem in the in the Nakab in the south of Israel. As I look at in the book, there's the situation of the Bedouin, which uh, has by some advocates really been cast in 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 the framing of of aboriginal rights discourse and so um this this fragmentation from a legal point of view is in many ways problematic because looking at it from a land law or property law perspective as many palestinians have done most notably recently suhad bichara has written a brilliant phd dissertation on the dispossession of Palestinians through land law that really, really reveals how that is a unified project. So uh, on the face of it, we have different legal regimes, but underlying that, I think there's quite a unified use of uh, land law, emergency powers, etc., to to dispossess Palestinians. 
How does the Zionist ideology work today now that agriculture represents just this tiny percentage of Israeli GDP? Kibbutzes are often affluent Ashkenazi enclaves, and the Israeli working class is either Palestinian or Mizrahi. Right. Well, maybe the framework of racial capitalism would be interesting to consider in relationship to the brand of Zionism that has become so predominant in Israel today. Um, I think that we're looking at a state now where far right and explicitly, I mean, in the words of Israeli journalists, you know, fascist uh, parties are represented in the Knesset. And so, you know, I think that there's a reemergence perhaps of a more theologically driven justification for Palestinian dispossession, that idea that's always been present in political Zionism, but uh, that, you know, the Jewish people have a relationship to the land that stretches back to biblical times. Um, I think that, you know, we see the resurgence of, of some of that kind of thinking. You write, quote, What is of significance is that the early Zionists were influenced not primarily by Lockean property rationales based on the imperatives of a burgeoning agrarian capitalism, but by German idealism. The notion of the Volk as being of the land, rooted in the soil of their national homeland, forms the basis for entitlement to a state based on their natural ties to that territory. Zionism was a political, spiritual, and territorial nationalist project. And you also write that, quote, The Zionist colonization project was not primarily driven by economic or financial considerations of profit and resource exploitation, and herein lies one of the differences between the founding of Israel and other settler colonies. Much of your book draws on on examples from a specifically British common law tradition, which formed the basis of legal thinking and practice in, in North America and Australia, but legal thinking for much of the rest of the world draws from different tributaries, or at least also different tributaries, which which makes the Zionist case study interesting here. What does this more complex genealogy in the case of Israel reveal about how we ought to analyze racial regimes of ownership across the entire capitalist world system? Does does the Zionist example give us give us a hint of of the diversity of racial regimes that extend beyond the common law settler colony across this extremely variegated capitalist world system that we live in today? Well, I think, and that's a very good question. I mean, I think that um, one of the things that the Palestinian situation should draw our attention to is that all of these different colonial contexts have a different uh, kind of historical specificity. So I know that's stating the obvious, but if we think about Palestine and we think about the British mandate that precedes the creation of the state of Israel in 1948, it draws our attention towards the Ottoman Empire. It draws our attention to a different history. If we're just thinking about land law and property, it draws our attention to the fact that Palestine is ensconced within a very different political economy than, let's say, indigenous communities in in different parts of Canada in the, you know, 19th century. There are 
different kinds of land reform happening within the Ottoman legal arena with the land reforms of 1858, etc., that of course, are then manipulated, changed, transformed, drawn upon by the British during their during the mandate. So there is a, a huge difference in the prehistory of uh, the settler colonial formation that is Israel-Palestine, right, between that context and others. Now, does that mean that we should not examine how there are very similar legal techniques of domination, legal relations of um, power uh, that are used in Palestine, that are used in uh, South Australia, that are used in Algeria by the French, uh, etc. I think it's really a valuable um, exercise to really draw out these similarities, also as a also as a point of political solidarity. So, yeah, I think that it's not really doing comparative work, but in trying to draw out techniques, uh, juridical techniques that are absolutely central to global capitalism and this longer history of colonial capitalism, trying to draw out those juridical techniques and seeing how they travel and are used in different colonial contexts is is a really important exercise, but it requires one to pay great attention to the differences in these these contexts. And I think that, yeah, in that sense, um, Israel-Palestine is really instructive. You write that quote, There is a common tendency among some scholars of Israel-Palestine to assert that Israel is the last settler colony, engaging in practices of colonial settlement that were accomplished in North America and Australia in the 19th century. These assertions imply that colonization was accomplished in these older settler colonies and that somehow their past is Palestine's present. Contrary to this view, I seek to emphasize that the juridical techniques of appropriation and dispossession utilized across the settler colonial sites that I examine continue to inform the ongoing processes of settlement and displacement in Canada, Australia, and elsewhere. Your point's well taken, but is there, though, some useful way to periodize and distinguish these different stages of settler colonial dispossession at different moments in the development of of the capitalist world system in a way that doesn't make them misleadingly appear to be entirely different from one another. Or if settler colonialism is a structure rather than an event, can we still not periodize such a structure and its transformations over time? Yeah. I mean, I think the periodization happens when we think about something like the emergence of neoliberalism. I mean, neoliberalism requires different legal structures it requires modifications to the legal form of private property ownership, right? You know, apropos of, of the earlier discussion where we were thinking about the differences for a minute about, oh, well, how interesting would it be to think about these questions through the lens of intellectual property, for instance. But so if we consider how land appropriation and dispossession, what that looks like, or you mentioned housing earlier as well, what that looks like with the emergence of neoliberalism uh, or what a racial regime of ownership looks like um, through neoliberal rationales, then I think that is a really effective way of trying to 
not periodize exactly, maybe that's kind of overstating it, but in distinguishing between, you know, different aspects of colonial dispossession that have this long history and that are continuing and have contemporary legacies and the repetitions with difference or the 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 new and emergent forms of juridical techniques that are that are are shaping our present. So yeah, I do think there are are really important differences to be marked uh, when it comes to settler colonialism in other places versus Israel Palestine. I've also started to think about it a little bit differently. I mean, one thing that distinguishes Israel Palestine from other settler colonies is the is obviously the demographic situation. There are so many just you know. Um, demographic differences between Israel-Palestine and other settler colonies. I think that provides a lot of important explanatory value for the differences. Um, But if we think about the dispossession that's happened in uh, some of the sites in British Columbia that I've been looking at again more recently, we're looking at land theft that happens, you know, from the mid-19th century, but then continues up into the 20th century. And so... These periods of time that seem so different to us are very much overlapping in terms of the development of legal doctrine. You know, so you have in the early 20th century doctrines like preemption or the continued sort of sort of spread of title by registration, etc. And those maybe not preemption in the Palestinian context, but you know, if we think about the early 20th century in Palestine, and then the mandate period, so from 1918, I think, until the creation of the State of Israel in 48. But you have the British um, imposing and, again, sort of innovating um, different uh, land law doctrines in that context that are not so far off in time from what's happening in other settler colonial contexts. So There are very real and important differences, as I mentioned, when we think about the prehistory to the formal establishment of of Israel in 1948, when we compare these different settler colonial contexts. But the the periods of time are actually overlapping. And, and, And then we see in our contemporary moment, a lot of continuity between sites like Kashmir and also the United States as a settler colony and the kind of militarized policing that is happening in Palestine. You know, we we see the transfer, the knowledge transfer happening uh, between these um, different jurisdictions. And so I think that, yeah, there's, there's clearly ways in which we must mark the differences in uh, the governing rationales and logics, like I mentioned neoliberalism as an example, um, but there would be other uh, governing logics that emerge at a particular point in time to mark that are important. But uh, again, thinking about how this period of time that we're talking about is actually, you know, when we think about Indigenous presence on the land is actually quite a a short period of time. Uh, although these occupations seem very long, um, they are uh, relative to 
indigenous presence on the land, I think, uh, relatively recent. The entire structure of our economy and politics in, in the United States and in many other places, but it's built around property ownership in general and real estate in particular. Just in the U.S., look at the endlessly appreciating housing market being the near sole vehicle for wealth building in the United States and and it being what substitutes for an actual welfare state for the limited portion of the population in the U.S. that can secure access to homeownership. And in fact, the more homeownership appreciates to act as a substitute welfare state for those inside the system, the worse things get for everyone outside of the homeownership system and the harder it gets to break into the homeownership system. It's a entire dynamic that seems to be entering into a kind of another level of crisis at the moment. How should this reality inform how we analyze the contours of capitalist power in the United States today and, and perhaps elsewhere? And and how do the histories you tell in your book, how do they help us form that analysis of a capitalist order that is so profoundly about real estate? Mm-hmm. I really like the concept of the real estate state that's developed by Samuel Stein. Yeah, I find that really helpful to think with. And I think you're absolutely right in your diagnosis. And, you know, in terms of thinking about how these histories of settler colonialism inform our understanding of the contemporary real estate state, you know, we can see that the inauguration of the economy of private property is all about creating a market in land. So we have in this conversation focused a lot on the ideology of improvement and, you know, the emphasis on agriculture historically, etc., which also then takes on a kind of metaphysical uh, quality in the context of uh, Israel-Palestine, right, rather than a, a, um, an economic reality. But I think what we see with the real estate state is a obviously a massive shift to a different concept of value, and again a you know that as, that aspect of ownership, which is the capacity for owners to speculate, which also actually you know that's also a very old story. Actually, that's not new, but but maybe that. Um, takes on a different life uh, juridically and in terms of what is valuable about ownership. And I think that, you know, in, in, in thinking about how we resist or uh, react to this, re- the reality of the real estate state, so, so the fact that you mentioned, which is so depressing, um, but also very true, is, is the idea that with the deterioration of any kind of social welfare, the objective of becoming an owner or homeowner or, or a, a rentier or, or what have you uh, becomes the path to security, right? And I think that one way of reacting against that or, or challenging that is also not a new story, but is something that we see happening really vibrantly in all kinds of urban spaces. I'm not sure about non-urban spaces, but we definitely see it in urban spaces, which is the fight against um, corporate landlords, um, the fight for rent control, the the idea of making ownership less lucrative or less valuable. And I think that, you know, when I think about it conceptually, but also practically, I think the answer 
lies in making private ownership valueless. I mean that that that's an abolitionist sort of objective, you know, in a in a sense. Um, um, I think that Andreas Malm has recently uh, in the how to uh, blow up a pipeline book, or maybe in a, in another text. Um, you know, use the phrase property will cost us the earth. And I think, you know, as a, as a slogan, in a way, it's quite, it's quite useful because in, in many ways, I think it, it has a lot of truth to it. Um, so I think in thinking about survivability and thinking about livability and thinking about things like the climate crisis, trying to make ownership less lucrative and valuable really ought to be at the core of of our political thinking and our political struggle. Uh, I mean, you know, a, a massive example of this, of course, is, is through the pandemic and the struggle over the over the proprietary ownership of um, the patents for for the COVID vaccine. You know, and and if that's any sign of where we're headed, then I think then the the future looks very bleak because. <laughs> You know, those struggling for a loosening of the uh, proprietary powers of the patent didn't really succeed in in the way that many of us had hoped. So, uh, yeah, I think I think the idea of trying to create the conditions where it no longer pays to be uh, uh, an owner is one uh, way of thinking about this problem. One response to this intertwined history of race and private property and colonialism, it's to incorporate indigenous and other non-white people, women, into the class of property ownership via massified home ownership or efforts to diversify the C-suite or whatever. But I think we've alluded to why that might fall short. And you propose another model. In an essay written around the time of Brexit and and Trump's election in, in 2016, you invoked this term of possessive nationalism, a corollary to possessive individualism, in in order to understand how how these specific forms of property ownership that we've property ownership that we've been discussing, how they in fact have been critical to giving rise to these racist and nationalist right wing populisms, and I think it really gestured to really novel ways about how we might think about fighting the right by, quote, estranging and deposing the possessive individual and its practices, desires, and habits that are at the foundation of contemporary political formations. To close out, in what ways does the historical and theoretical analysis in that essay, and and in this book, in what ways does it provide some indications of another strategy for fighting the right? One, that doesn't lead us into the arms of of centrist forces and these morbid institutions that that they're defending, but instead signal a quote break with legal forms of property as we know them, and the dismantling of sovereign forms of power and subjectivities within their orbit. That particular essay where I take up this idea of possessive nationalism. It was an interesting one to, it's an interesting idea to explore in relationship to Brexit or Trump and these other uh, right-wing um, political uh, figures and, and also formations, uh, because it, it did allow me to shift to a different 
form of property which was thinking about the brand and thinking about how that operates in relationship to this idea of possessive nationalism. And it it very much, I think, is a way of understanding how something like the right to exclude or this logic of private property operates in, in different registers and along in, in different scales, right? From the individual proprietor all the way to the uh, idea of bordering of the nation state. And I think that I end the book Colonial Lives of Property. And, uh, you know, as we were speaking about a few moments ago, with the idea that unsettling our expectations of ownership involve transformation along many different scales, right, or, or on many different scales. So at the level of the individual and in terms of our relationships with others uh, who we, you know, choose to live with and, and who we work with, etc., I think that really thinking deeply about how that, how these logics of possession and ownership inform the way we relate to others you know, needs to be a part of how we consider the kind of political transformation that is really um, incumbent upon us, given the the state of the the world at the moment. But it also means struggling at local levels, municipal levels, um, state levels, and internationally. Uh, you know, I mentioned the situation of the COVID patent a, a few moments ago, but but it means really thinking along all these different levels about what it means to uh, de-propertize things, to take things that have been naturalized as objects of private ownership. So be that water, uh, water resources, or be that um, forests or, or, you know, borders, um, to think about, well, how do we transform the logics of private ownership into something uh, radically alien to that? Um, and of course, there are many different historical examples and, and many different practices of relating to things outside of a logic of individual ownership that we can draw on. So, you know, whether that's thinking about expropriation movements uh, by housing activists in Berlin, or whether that's thinking about how different, you know, First Nations, I can think about how, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, Robert Clifford, who is Wasanich teaches us and and writes about um, the Wasanich uh, relationship to uh, water and land in Wasanich territories, which is um, through a very much an uncommodified relationship to water and land. Um, you know, I'm just using that as an example, but there's, you know, hundreds or more uh, uh, of examples that come to mind, both in the present moment and historically. And so I think that, you know, whether we're thinking about property in terms of um, intellectual property or in terms of land or in terms of real estate, as you as you mentioned earlier, this idea of making ownership less valuable and therefore less attractive of depropertizing things so that 
things are not understood as resources to be mined or exploited. All of these uh, ways of contending with the the pitfalls of private ownership, I think, are are ones for us to work on and, and work towards. Well, Brenna Bandar, thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you very much for um, this really thought-provoking set of questions and conversation. Brenna Bandar works and lives on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations. She is the author of Revolutionary Feminisms, Conversations on Collective Action and Radical Thought. She is co-editor of Revolutionary Feminisms, Conversations on Collective Action and Radical Thought, and the author of the book we discussed today, Colonial Lives of Property, Law, Land, and Racial Regimes of Ownership. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after defining communism succinctly as the abolition of private property, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Thea Real Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or some other such platform, please also rate and review us. Those reviews and ratings help introduce us to new listeners, but what really does that is you telling other people about this pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com to make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. 